Great to have you on board for episode 28 of On the Rocks with Joe Warren. Anyone that owns residential or commercial property on the coast has experienced insurance sticker shock over the last few years. My homeowner's insurance nearly tripled last year, and I've never tapped my homeowner's policy in my 23 years of ownership. But there is a solution, and my guest today, Isaac Matthews, can guide the way. Isaac is a certified professional insurance agent for Brown & Brown, focusing on commercial properties throughout the Southeast. I recently sat down with Isaac for this interview and shortly thereafter engaged his team to restructure my homeowners and auto insurance, saving thousands of dollars per year. Hear how Isaac has gone from humble start in rural North Carolina to one of the most successful insurance guys in the low country. Enjoy. Isaac, good to see you in episode 28, brother, of On the Rocks. Congrats, and, uh, You've got, you, you and I are both spirited this morning in our, our colorful outfits, but um, before we even get going, rumor has it you got like a, kind of a s sweet Cadillac somewhere out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 67 Cadillac DeVille. It's a, it's a coupe. It's the size of a, um, a Chevrolet Tahoe. It barely fits in my garage. I got about a foot in front and about a foot and a half behind it. Uh, but the the drive behind that was obviously during the pandemic. Um, you spend a lot of time online, especially Facebook Marketplace. Everybody was buying golf carts, <laughs> boats, campers, you know, anything to get them outside. So, um, you know, the reason I bought it, I was reminded by my grandmother because after I bought it, I sent the family a picture of it. And my grandmother reminded me when I was 16 years old, I used to carry a picture of the exact same car. This one was blue, the one I bought was black, in my wallet as a 16 year old and prior to. <laughs> so then I started remember, like thinking back, well, why the heck did I used to carry that picture in my wallet? The only thing that I could, you know, kind of point it to is I grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard. Oh, that's, Hall, that's what I was like. imaging. Is, yeah. there, is, there, is there some Longhorns on the front? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I, I think uh, I think it would be good, you know, with Bulls Bay. They would probably enjoy that. Having that's that a good on point. The front. But uh, you could probably get them to sponsor your your horns. On pro the front. <laughs> probably could. So that was kind of the idea, and then too, just you know. During the pandemic, I uh, found a deal um, on it and just always wanted one. And it's just a great Sunday driver. It's good to drive to the golf course. And it's my first and only convertible that I've ever owned. Oh, gosh. So, you should have drove it here. I thought about it. Um, no, I, uh, so I, when I turned, this is old Kentucky days. Now I'll go back to my history. Born in West Virginia, upgraded to Kentucky. Now I'm in South Carolina. So I'm really. Only got 48 more states to go until <laughs> at the top. You're covering the south. Though. But um, I had a Mustang convertible. As actually, you know what? My dad had an Oldsmobile. Okay. You know, and, and I, when I first you know, started driving, he gave me the Mustang. But sometimes I need to use his Oldsmobile. And this was like bench seats. You yeah. know, like 67 Oldsmobile. This was a tank. Yeah. Like, and he was. I remember him teaching me. He's like, the thing you do is you, if you're on a date. Put your arm out and take a hard right. <laughs> It'll slide right up yeah. to you. And I was like, in the middle to keep them from falling. I was like, the bench seats. What happened to those, man? Yeah. But uh, no, I had some old school cars too. And then I had a convertible Mustang that I drove forever, man. Um, 
But the cars back then are different, man. They're like they're classics. You know, mm-hmm. now it's like you're in a car for three years and then you're replacing it and you're getting new electric and then I don't know. So yeah. anyways, but um so we met years ago, probably in conjunction with golf. You're a big time golfer here in town. I know you're a Bulls Bay advocate and kind of the junior mayor over there. So uh, talk to me about golf and how it's kind of been in your life and what it's meant for business and, you know, where your mind is on your capabilities. And I know we're going to play later today. So, sure. you know, did you grow up playing golf? So I had an aunt that was a ranger at Tanglewood, uh, Tanglewood Country Club or Tanglewood Park, which is where they used to have the Vantage Golf Tournament. Yeah. It was a PGA event. So she was really the only influence in my life of golf. Um, used to spend some time in her backyard and she would allow me to take one of her wedges and a tennis ball because there was a lot of houses around. So I started probably when I was like uh, seven or eight years old, just whacking a tennis ball with a golf club in the backyard. And then she finally, you know, progressed to taking me out on the course and just kind of picked it up from there. But I would say I didn't really actually pick the game up until high school because growing up playing baseball and basketball and then my dad not really being an advocate of golf and we were really trying to push because I was actually decent in basketball, got MVP 7th and 8th grade. So Ah, we were trying trying to push, you know, the scholarship route with basketball. But then high school um, learned that basketball was – not as fun when you're playing for a high school team when you're just running and practicing and just not even shooting the ball for two or three hours it was just it kind of felt like boot camp to me i went to a lot of summer basketball camps and it just wasn't fun um so continued hitting the ball in the backyard and doing things like that um but then freshman year tried out for the high school golf team and got on i was probably second to last pick or something was the team good uh, my freshman year, we were not good. My junior and senior year, I think we set like a, or at that time, our high school's record of making it into the state playoffs. I want to say we got third or fourth in the state um, for our region. Nice. Or, or our, um, I think we were 2A or something like were that. Were you playing? Was it a five-man team? It was a four. Four, four man and like one that got rotates. That's how, I, I did the same in high school. Yeah. So. So that's really what got me serious in it. And then the focus kind of shifted in high school with golf was, hey, potentially maybe we could play in college, but that didn't happen because I ended up going to UNC Charlotte. UNC Charlotte, my sophomore year, was ranked number one in the nation. Of all history of UNC Charlotte, of all sports, it was the first time any of their uh, sports teams were ranked number one in the nation. So didn't really have the caliber of making it on that team. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. But. So, but now you, and I know we play a lot of fun matches together before too, but now you, I always talk to people because I've had golf pros on here and I've got people that I've got, I had Greg Keating, the DI, the DI manager, et cetera, but golf's kind of like a, I, I teach my kids this now because they're like six and eight and they're starting to like, I need, they need to know how to socialize, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, it's probably a big part of how you work your client business and appreciation and meet people and yada, yada, yada. Absolutely. I would say if you looked at my book of business and you looked at the the top 10 clients, uh, at least three or four of those clients were um, either met on a golf course, met through golf, and or in the first meeting discovered they were a golfer and then played golf before actually closing the deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So golf has been a huge uh, proponent. It's been a huge catalyst to landing deals. And you're stuck with that person for four hours. 
Sometimes five. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> five, depending on the day. And it's it's just the quickest the quickest way to establish a relationship and to also learn that prospect, you know, that future client, um, kind of learn who they are as a person, learn what, you know, kind of their characteristics are, yeah. how do they act when they hit a bad shot, and are they honest? <laughs> do you see them dropping a ball? You, you might not want to have them as a client <laughs> dropping balls in a fairway or line about their score. That's so. funny. No, I feel the same way. We The guys at the office, A, we play a lot of golf, but B, uh, you know, we look in our, our CRM and we kind of you know, segregate people based off their interest, and it's got to be 80% plus on the golf course. I remember when I was in D.C. starting Morgan Stanley, I was like, well, I don't want to cold call every day, so I'm going to go play golf tournaments. You know, mm-hmm. like a Wednesday amateur qualifier, X, Y, Z. I'm like, if anybody's out here actually playing golf on a Tuesday at 11, something's got to be going all right in their life. Like, they're going to have some money. They probably need some help. You know, and it was a great way to do business. Um, and then I joined a club in D.C. called Four Streams, which was like about 45 minutes from D.C., but it was a legit course, kind of like, uh, maybe like Bulls Bay, like a little out there, mm-hmm. very unique uh, members, kind of, you know, and that just took off, you know, everybody started playing golf, so. Now, did you, when you played in high school, did you ever try to, you were you ever thinking about the big tour? Uh, the big tour wasn't really on my list. I, you know, I grew up in sort of, I wouldn't say like a, a low-income poor, but you know, my dad quit buying me clothes. I think my so- sophomore year of high school, whenever I got you know my license, he basically said, "All right, everything's on you. I'll pay for your insurance on your truck. Your gas is you. You know, get a job. You want new clothes? Go buy new clothes." Um, so I would say my goal was just to try to get a scholarship and to pay for college because I knew that you know the funds were limited. To what my dad could afford academic and athletic or academic academically um well and athletic as well like he never whatever never bought me golf clubs or yeah. anything but i was concerned about who was going to pay for college because i didn't want to get in huge debt you know growing up playing golf with older people and listening to them you know complain about you know whether they went into the medical field and they're complaining about these uh you know college tuition that they're still paying on. Yeah. 10 years later being in the industry working and they're still paying their student loans. I didn't want to have that. Um, so, and also I didn't really want to put my dad in a huge burden of paying for college that he couldn't afford. So part of my golf kind of dream was to get a scholarship to help offset his costs. Gotcha. So that did not happen. So luckily for me, I was pretty academically gifted. Although I think I set a record in the eighth grade from fifth grade to eighth grade, we had this reading program for the kids that couldn't read, the dumb kids. It was called Turbo. I was in that. But I was also from sixth to eighth grade in AIG, which is the Academically Intelligently Gifted class. And there was wow. only five of us. Complicated. So I, how was I the dumb kid that couldn't read, but also in this AIG class? So I used my uh, kind of wits and smarts, I guess, to get a lot of uh, grants and small, uh, you know, one or two thousand dollars scholarships to really offset the college costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd say, you know, probably save my dad fifty percent just That's by cool. getting the grants and um, those, you know, one or two thousand dollars scholarships and going to a local. I went to UNC Charlotte, so the tuition, you know, you're not paying the out of state tuition. Yeah, yeah, I had the same. Uh, 
I, my parents, I remember putting me in like a, a special reading class when I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, and I was like, they were like, something's wrong with you. I was like, <laughs> I was like, is there? I was like, I'm, I'm very aware there's something wrong with me. That's, <laughs> not, that's no doubt. But now I love, I mean, like, I never really had a problem. I just probably didn't like it as a kid. Sure. And then I just, now I read, I've got so many books, and all I do is read, even though we're talking on a podcast today, but... Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, when you're a kid, you don't, you know, not parents don't exactly know what's wrong with you or what's up. They sort sure. of guess. So. Sure. <laughs> they throw you in things and say, oh, let's see if this works. See if anything good comes out of it. And you transitioned from after school. Did you transition into insurance directly or was, was... So that's an interesting question as well. Um, just due to timing in the marketplace. And I, I know you know this well, and so does the rest of America. But, um, for me, 2008... I was a sophomore in college. So freshman year, I had the idea, I'm going to go hardcore into finance, you know, the business uh, section of college, which is the Belt College of Business. So, but I was geared in my mind, I'd say freshman year, to be a stockbroker. Yeah. Anything in the investment side. Got it. I just loved the, the deals. I, my mom was, was in a similar business um, and I watched her have kind of the best two years of her career uh, doing what she was doing. It was sort of like viatical settlements, settlements um, you know, basically buying life insurance. And, yeah. But um, somehow that became illegal. I think they were based out of California. That's a whole other story. You can't buy it. I remember getting pitched on these deals. We'll buy a policy. Don't sell it. We'll pay the premium. Mm-hmm. And then they pay us. And I don't think the insurance companies like that. No. And there was like an annuity side to it. But long story short, it just inspired me as like seventh and eighth grade watching her have her best two years of her career. And um, So I said, you know what? I want to go in business. Learning that I love golf going into college because I played high school golf. You know, being around a lot of successful guys, I was like, I think finance, you know, stockbroker investment world works perfect with golf. Um, and I just love the deal. Uh, I love, you know, putting people together. And naturally, I've always been a salesman. So, yeah. you know, obviously, being a stockbroker, you have to be a pretty good salesman, liked and trust. But 2008 happened. So sitting there in all these finance classes, whether it was uh, microeconomics yeah. or, um, you know, risk management, whatever it was, 101, all the professors were basically telling us college kids, you're all doomed. Go ahead and get your master's. And so a lot of kids did that. A lot of kids stayed in school five to six, seven years. Um, That was in my uh, class era. But going back to trying to save dad money and myself money, that wasn't an option for me. I knew that all I had was four years, uh, four years in, four years out. And the day that I graduated, I knew that you know everything was going to be completely on on my plate and, and under my belt as far as trying to make a living and pay for bills so i took a risk management 101 finance elective course that went towards the finance major with that was a professor uh, by the name of thomas marshall he's kind of the godfather of insurance in charlotte north carolina anybody that's in the insurance world knows who he is huh. He was basically the um, RVP for auto owners insurance company for like 40 years. So by taking his class sophomore year of college in 2008, I learned that it was recession proof. He literally walked me to the classroom window. Uh, We looked out the blinds together. He said, you see that house over there? You see that car that just went by? You see that (laughs) gas station with lights on? Yeah. All three of those things have to have insurance, no matter how you know, good or bad the economy is. So 
to me, it kind of just rang a light bulb. I said, okay, I can graduate. I can get a job, you know, no matter how bad the economy is. And that's kind of how I feel. And so I switched my, I kept the finance major, but just with a concentration of risk management and insurance. How did you end up in Charleston? So uh, during, I would say those college years, one of my best friends slash mentors, who's now an attorney, um, he's about four or five years older than me. We came to Charleston a lot on spring breaks and just four day weekends. And he actually ended up moving to Charleston prior to me graduating. So by about senior year of college, I actually met a lot of people here in Charleston and probably ended up having more friends in Charleston than I did back home in Charlotte. Yeah. And so worked in Charlotte for one year right out of college and then moved to Charleston. So graduated on Saturday from UNC Charlotte, went to work the following Monday for AAA selling home, auto, and life insurance, and AAA memberships, and hated it. It was so transactional, and it wasn't what I went to college for. You know, anybody could really plug numbers in in a computer and get a quote, and, yeah, you know, it just, but I wanted something with more, you know, uh, dollars behind the premiums and dealing with more sophisticated risk and sophisticated buyers going into the commercial insurance. So, um, basically decided Charlotte wasn't for me anymore after graduating. It was about a 45 minute commute to work, sometimes an hour and a half commute home. And then again, just did not enjoy doing the personal lines. Yeah, yeah. So found um, a recruiter that kind of helped me learn who the players were in the insurance industry around Charleston and actually ended up calling on Brown and Brown Insurance. This is where I am today. So yeah. Yeah, January, 2012, still here today. Now I'm gonna pick on insurance a bit just cause I'm it's my podcast, so I can do what I want. Um, <laughs> no, no, but I I know insurance really well. I mean, we we can you know as we buy insurance companies, we know how profitable that business can be, especially after there's a hurricane that blows through. I mean, that's like when you load up on insurance companies because <laughs> yes. they're getting the jack premiums, you yes. know. Yes. But um, and I was a big disciple of the Buffett concept. He owns Geico and Berkshire and their float. I never really understood this, but. I guess because I mean I think if you get to a certain size and you have a certain amount of liquidity and guaranteed assets, you can kind of take the float mm-hmm. and go buy other stuff that doesn't have to be treasuries. Which I don't understand how he does it, but travelers and AIG can't. It always it was really weird to me, but whatever. But I looked into it a lot. I was like, this is a great idea. Take in money now to pay out later. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's a good business model. Like pretty simple. But. Um, I just got my renewal. I know you're you're in a certain area, but I'm just going to consider you all insurance for that matter, since yes. you're a risk guy. But uh, I mean, what walk me through what people in the southeast on the coast do at this stage? I just I think my home insurance just tripled. I don't even, I don't think I even got notified. By the way, it just mm-hmm. showed up. I remember like two weeks ago or two months ago, my automatic you know deduction from my checking account for my mortgage bounced. Because I got my insurance went up by like three grand a month or something. It was crazy. So, mm-hmm. what? And he brought. I know he brought me an article on kind of properties, et cetera. But what is? Where's the end game on this coastal marketplace? Is it just going to be a federally insured area, or I, I don't know. I don't get sure, it. Sure. So. Sure. So, what's driving this is it's the past. Kind of to sum it up, the the past five years of losses. And we'll, let's just focus on the coast, the coastal properties. Call this, let's say, Florida to D.C. Florida so. to D.C. to even uh, Texas. Um, you can even bring in California. So basically anything nationally 
on the coast. So again, we can go to California, uh, we can go to the Gulf, and then we can even go as high as when we had Hurricane or Superstorm Sandy, which is in the Northeast. But basically, the last five years of losses have wiped out 10 years worth of profits. For the industry. For the, for the industry, specifically on, and it's probably worse if you focus just on the coastal property carriers. But the reason we're seeing rates are up primarily is because those insurance companies also buy reinsurance. Of course. So when the reinsurance rates go up, the insurance company, they have to pass those rates increases on to us, the buyers. Yeah. Um, but to couple that, you have some insurance companies that rode on the coast and were very competitive on the coast but let's say the last two years of losses have taken them from an A-rated carrier to now a C-rated, or some even went out of business bankrupt. So you've got carriers that have left the coast. So let's just say your homeowners, three years ago, we could have probably quoted 12 different insurance companies. Yeah. And you literally could have sat down and had 12 different quote, quotes and chose you know, through those, probably narrowed it down to the best three, and then made the best three compete to win your business. Now, this year, those 12, you're probably down to three or four. Yeah. That can actually take on the amount of insurance. Have you seen, have you had places where, whether it's commercial or resident, whatever it is, that where somebody filed a claim and the insurer just was out of business? And what, I mean, what happens to that incident? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So two things. One, if it's an admitted carrier, then the South Carolina Guarantee Fund will step in and, and pay that claim up to a certain amount. And also you have to prove that, um, you know, so if you're a business, let's say that you were with um, Tower Hill Insurance Company, and let's say that Tower Hill went belly up and you had a claim a month after they went belly up. If your business can't afford it, then basically the guarantee fund won't kick in and help you out with the claim. But for, let's say, the condo regimes out there, because this actually happened to me last two, two years ago, there was a company called AMCAP Insurance. They were based out of Florida. They only wrote like Florida, Texas, Alabama, and South Carolina. They were killing it. We probably wrote 1.5 million in premium. Call that around 15 accounts with them in one yeah, year. Yeah. So they went belly up. We had to replace coverage. Well, there was a claim that occurred and it was like a $25,000 water loss at a condo association. So being that the condo association is essentially a nonprofit, not-for-profit entity, the South Carolina Guarantee Fund actually stepped in and paid that $25,000 water damage claim. However, if you're with what they call the ENS, the Excess and Surplus Lines Marketplace, the South Carolina Guarantee Fund will not kick in. So when you're choosing those carriers, you really have to uh, make sure that they're an A or A plus, uh, A and best rated or better carrier. Because in that scenario, if it was an ENS carrier that went out, then you're basically just SOL. So you, I mean, you do mostly commercial prop, commercial Correct. stuff. Correct. What I mean, I have a ton of property owners and like large, you know, guys that own industrial, et cetera, that listen to this. Like, what are the things? I think, you know, let me put it this way: I'm kind of obviously a numbers and finance guy, but I'll be pretty clear. I have very little insurance knowledge, and I think a lot of my very sophisticated clients who run medical plazas or REITs or whatever they do, mm -hmm. they just are like, "Hey, Isaac, dude, figure it out, man." But what are the things that you really what are two or three things you really want to think about if you have a large property or you're in the commercial market trying to place your insurance? Is it just 
find Isaac? Or is it, hey, find Isaac and make sure Isaac asks about these three things? Because, you know, in our business, people are like, hey, you're an investment guy. Are you a fiduciary? Yeah, we are a fiduciary. Of course, mm -hmm. we're a fiduciary. We also invest our money just like yours. You know, mm -hmm. they ask, they, like the sophisticated clients are like, I know you're a money guy, but let me ask these very basic questions to make sure you do, you know, have my interest in. So as a, as a large property owner, or, you know, if you're in that commercial market looking for insurance, what are the pitfalls to look for? Sure. So I think going back to the question, you know, do you find Isaac, if, if I was a, um, let's say a, a business owner and I own all rental properties of, uh, let's say shopping centers, yeah, yeah, let's say that sure. I have 40 shopping centers that are anchored to Walmart. So the, the first thing that I would do as that business owner is to make sure that the broker that I'm using is that's their niche. Like that is their expertise. Okay. So I, I don't necessarily want to entertain a broker whose book of business is primarily contractors. I don't want to be the only client he has or the one of three client that he has out of a hundred that are the REITs or the, you know, commercial real estate groups. I want to find a broker whose primary business, you know, their book of business is primarily commercial properties okay. in that sector. So like for me, if you owned five hospitals and you know you came to me for the medical side of it, I wouldn't really have a clue. Now I have a team that obviously could help me, but and I would definitely just make sure that your your broker that you choose has a niche in that. And then assuming you choose me, the first question that I want to ask my client is how much are you willing to self-insure? That's kind of the first thing. And then point. along with that, how much are you leveraged by banks? Because the banks control the amount of insurance you have to carry. Yeah, and they also control deductibles as well. Walk me through clients of yours that are debt-free. Um, I mean, I talk about self-insurance all the time, but I mean, is that, how do you price that in? Either at home or a commercial, like whatever. If I, sure. I if I didn't have a mortgage on this property, there's no way I'd have homeowners insurance. Sure. I mean, like I've never used it in 25 years and I hear that I'm gonna need it one day and sure. I could have taken the $500,000 I paid and probably made it two million, you know? Mm -hmm. but. What is the self-insurance formula for guys that are really not encumbered by debt? So, you know, I would say that um, if you comfortably could pay out of pocket what your full asset is, that's fine. And maybe you want to go that route. But I always remind my clients, look, you're in the, for example, I've got a guy that owns four apartment complexes. And let's just say those worth insurance values are 50 million, mm -hmm. you know, the guy probably has close to that in, in assets, but I doubt he has that in liquid cash, Yeah. right? Um, but the biggest question I ask them is, look, you realize you're not in the insurance business. You don't want to deal with um, adjusting your own claims and going to the bank and paying things out of your own pocket. And especially on the liability side, the great thing about insurance is they have excellent you know, litigation teams that are going to come in and help assist with this claim. You know, so basically instead of just you hiring some attorney trying to yeah, find yeah, a, a yeah. $400,000 lawsuit, yeah. the insurance company is going to do a good job and probably get it down to 200. Um, so do you, is it like, a, do you do a 50%, you know, value 25? Do you, do you think of those ratios? Or you just I think? would think of more of like 10% or, less, oh, okay. you know, um, because again, going back to that guy with a 50 million uh, portfolio of apartments, Let's say that the insurance might cost him five hundred thousand for that. Yeah, you know that's that's much better than him losing fifty million dollars worth of 
apartments in a hurricane yeah. versus him just paying out 500,000 bucks. Yeah. But what we have done to try to offset, so maybe at his 500,000, um, maybe we can get that down to 400,000 if he ups his deductible to say 100,000 or yeah. if he ups his hurricane deductible from 2% to 5% and, and or we might take the insurance down on wind from 50 million and we'll just buy a $10 million sublimit of wind because the likelihood of a hurricane taking out all 50 million of his property is pretty low. With the probable maximum loss on 50 million schedules, probably around 10 million. Yeah. So we might just buy wind for 10 million, but then maybe we buy earthquake at full limits. So I think the biggest thing is if you're a business owner and you're, you know, you, you want to have options. You know, when you go to a restaurant, you want to sit down, you don't want just what the chef recommends. And that's what drives me nuts with some of my competitors. They just bring in a renewal and it's just a single option. Yeah. When I go to my clients, I like to have at least three options, assuming they're available. And then we talk through, you know, their risk tolerance and, and what direction they might choose. So transition a little bit to back to kind of your, your upbringing. I remember you talking about your father and how he's kind of like, you're on your own, go get it. I mean, you've built a heck of a business in this town. Everybody knows you. We all, all my team knows you well. We know a couple people you work with. But talk me through the, what you learned as a kid, the, the morals, the principles. I know you talked about detail and options and, you know, personal touch, and I agree with all that. But what do you think you attribute? I'm not going to blow your head up too much on this interview, okay? Because you, you don't want, I'm getting ready to play golf, so I don't want you to be too confident. But walk me through like the, the couple of the things that you believe you do to sort of become successful in, you know, we're kind of in the same world. We're relationship guys. You know, yeah. we go out and we hustle and we meet people and we make sure we get their trust and deliver. Um, but were you taught that as a kid or did you develop it or was it a yeah, family that's, trait? That's a great question. Um, so, and I definitely have to give my father some credit. He owns a, uh, a two car garage. Uh, this is body shop. So basically, if you hit a deer, if you know, you you hit somebody in front of you at a stoplight. Uh, it's a very small town, so pretty much I was known growing up as, oh, you're Tommy's son. <laughs> he fixed my van when I hit a deer on the way to work, sure. or he fixed my wife's you know SUV when she ran off the road and hit a mailbox. So Tommy did a great job. The car actually looked better than before the accident. Um, so I think you know with him and i actually worked with him growing up you know just trying to get allowance money and worked with him uh probably until i was about 15 or 16. Um, but working for him and obviously he didn't let me do the painting he didn't let me do the the really detailed stuff but the prep for the painting for example uh you would have to wet sand so you would start you know with a a, a grittier let's say a, a 1,000 grit sandpaper wet sanding to prep for painting. So you'd start with 1,000, go to 2,000, go to 4,000. And he would basically come by and look at that. Let's say I was doing a, a fender wet sanding. And of course, there's all types of corners and crevices in a fender and you know parts that are, uh, I guess, a little more rounded. You really had to add some extra focus to well, I'm a kid, I'm just trying to get the job done and move on to the next thing. He would come back constantly, say, well, you missed this spot, or hey, this spot needs a little more attention. I'm like, Dad, why does it matter? You're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna put primer over it, and you're gonna paint it and put clear on it. No one's gonna be able to tell. He's like, yeah, but I can. You will. Yeah, That's he right. will. Yeah. So he never wanted anything to leave his shop unless it was perfect. I like that. 
And I think coming from a small town, one stoplight, everybody knows everybody. And again, I mean, my whole life, it was like, oh, you're Tommy's son. You yeah. Know? So I think, you know, and then two, he did zero advertising. It was all word of mouth. You just knew if you wrecked your car, you took it to Tommy. Yeah. And, and everybody just praised him of his work. And again, he just was such an attention to detail. So I think growing up that way, two things. In our business and in insurance, you really have to pay attention to the details. And you really have to do your homework to make sure everything is just buttoned up completely, uh, making sure every entity is covered, you know, making sure all additional locations. I mean, it's just, it's a nightmare going through everything. It takes a lot of time. Um, and, and brokers get by without doing that until you have a claim and something isn't covered. So yeah. there's that part of the detail. And then I think leading into the reputation you know, doing the honest thing for the client, even if you have to deliver bad news, if, you know, something wasn't fully covered or, hey, we missed something, now your rate's going to go up. But just being able to go to that person and being honest because, you know, reputation is is something that's extremely hard to repair once it's ruined. Yeah. So yeah. I think those two items really, you know, helped, um, was instilled for my father growing up. Yeah, I, uh, my, I, we always worked too. I mean, my dad was a doctor, my brother's a doctor here in town and, you know, and we was just like 13, mowing yards, building fences at 15, working all, worked all through college. It just was like work. That's the thing. Like, just go work and then be productive. I really don't know what I'd do if I couldn't work now, honestly. But um, And then the other thing I learned, A, I start my, my days early. I like, I'm mm -hmm. up, and, you know, I'm sleeping until 6 a.m. That's late for me. I'm usually up by 5.30. But I try to get all my bad news and challenging things out first. In the day, a lot of people wait, like they procrastinate. I'll do that later. Yeah. I don't want to call that client yeah. and tell them X, Y, Z. And I'm like, I'm going to do it at 8 a.m. I'm going to get it over with and, mm -hmm. you know, fight that battle. But um, it's funny. I tell people in this podcast and other folks I've listened to uh, talk to me. But um, if you just are have honesty and you work hard, even if you're not that great at your job, you're going to do just fine. Absolutely. You know, like if you just have hard effort, honest effort, people are going to be like, you know what? I'll just go with that guy, you know, <laughs> like it's okay. Um, if you actually have really talent and you deliver all those things, then you're going to be immensely successful. So um, now the other thing I wanted to touch on, because it's, it's part of our history a little bit, you know, I did a podcast with, um, with the Seacoast yeah. director, Greg, not so long ago, probably three, four or five months ago, but I know you have religion and faith in your, in your, um, in your pedigree and your belief system. My first podcast was this guy named Keith Kelly sitting in this office. And this is like just when COVID hit. So I was over there and he was over here. And like we were, <laughs> but he flew down and sure enough, and he has this company called Rate Reset that allows consumers to reset their mortgages without re refinancing. Great. Wow. Rates drop, get a new loan. Not, not even a new loan, just a new rate. Wow. Like that sounds great. Why wouldn't I have that? Well, you're like, this is amazing. Everybody should have one of these loans, right? Mm -hmm. Well, he struggled because the mortgage industry just didn't want to accept that. You know, think of all the brokers that got taken out of the refi business at that point. Mm -hmm. And eventually he sort of created some new products along the same lines. But one of the things he came in and said, he was like, I worked all the time and I was, you know, just busy, busy, busy. And my, I was missing my kids and my wife finally said, we just don't see you anymore. You know, you're not mm -hmm. around, you know, I mean, we, you, you missed their 10 years of growing up. And, he said, you know, I went to church the next day and I just kind of handed everything over to, you know, faith and just said, you know, I'm doing the best I can, Lord, this has helped me. And, you know, the next day somebody signed up as a new client, his business blossomed. I say that because it's kind of like hits my mind about how faith and religion and belief 
there's some value there, but it's hard to a you know allow that to be admitted in the business world, all right, and allow it to be by people admitted by people that just don't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. But how have you tackled and kept your belief system in this world that's doesn't want to believe right. that makes any sense, right. you know, right. especially the lifestyle we live because we can do some things that right. are probably anti-religious right. here and right. there. Absolutely. But you seem pretty convinced and devout, and I mean, um, I'm I'm kind of in that space too, especially with my kids. Like I want them to have a belief in something, mm-hmm. you know, faith in some capacity. Absolutely. So, so growing up, uh, Southern Baptist, uh, you know, the pews, the hymnals, just really old, stuff. really old that's school. Serious yeah. stuff. We didn't dance. That's probably why I can't really dance that well today. Um, you not to say that, we didn't you dance. Got that Kevin Bacon footloose. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, they probably dance at weddings now. But, it, you know, we also grew up in a dry county, um, so there was that, Good too. Thing. But, you know, I think I don't know where I would be, and especially as successful as I have been. And I say that because I think a lot of people kind of get burnt out or lose their mind or just out of anger or out of a bad deal that went wrong, you know, go out and make bad decisions. Um, so obviously in business there's ups and downs and there's things that don't go your way. So, for example, I think faith is is extremely important in business because if we could control the marketplace, you and I, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. You and I would be on a private jet or on a yacht somewhere if we could control the marketplace. Maybe. Meaning there wouldn't be any problems if if we could control the marketplace. So I speak marketplace on insurance. You speak marketplace, you know, on the investment side. So um, I think it takes a lot of faith and a, a solid religion or, or and or walk with God to be able to go through those tough times when things are out of your control. And I'm not a patient guy. If 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 I'm waiting on a deal Sorry, to close, man, patience yeah. is not an issue. Uh, not, not a virtue yeah. of ours. So. so I'm waiting on a quote from an underwriter and I'm 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 hoping that they get approval from the underwriting manager, you know, so but I might have to wait three or four days. And yeah. and I can't control that. So <clears> for me, I think by just praying and kind of putting that in God's hands, you know, it might not be the outcome that I like at the moment, but it's probably for a better reason. Yeah. So prime example, I had a client who, it's an it's an old frame built condo association downtown. Well, they renewed on February 10th. We collected their payment, which they went through a finance company on February 17th. The finance company held on to the funds and somehow it just didn't get to the insurance company, which normally they pass it on. Well, long story short, the insurance company had put out some notices. Us as an agency didn't see it and they canceled the policy. Ah. So we get this call, the policy's canceling in 10 days. They put out the cancellation notice and I'm freaking out because I know that I can't replace this deal for the same amount of money. If I had to replace it, it'd probably quadruple the premium. Well, the insurance company just wasn't having it. They just said, look, this client was late. They were late in previous years. We're not going to reinstate it. So here I am worried about having to replace the business, which would triple the premium. And there's only 24 unit owners there. So I would be financially affecting their lives. And, you know, I called the guy and begged him. He said, no, I ended up calling his boss which then his boss told me, oh, I'm no longer the boss. The guy you just got off the phone with oh, is now man. the boss. So now I really look like a jackass. And But anyway, he just wasn't having it. I had my boss call and try to plead. He wasn't having it either. So a week went by. We're getting close to that 10-day 
cancellation date. I still don't have a replacement quote. Um, was at church, literally put it on the cross at Seacoast. <laughs> I wrote the client's name down. That's all I wrote on there. Nailed it to the cross. Um, Tuesday night Bible study, told the story to my Bible study group. And, you know, I just said, look, I don't care if, if I lose this client, um, but if another broker can come in and help them or just pray that another insurance company can come in and save this. Like, I just don't want to affect the lives of 24 unit owners that are paying this premium. Yeah. So the following week, I actually ended up calling the guy again, the insurance company rep. And I said, hey, look, man, do you have an agency that you just absolutely love that's great on billing and just gets you everything on time, even though it wasn't our fault as a finance company? So yeah, yeah, fair enough. Trying to clear the name because we do a pretty good job of collecting on premium. But um, so by, by me calling him and telling him that, I think he saw that I was sincere and that we really didn't just hold on to the money. It was really just a mishap of the finance company. But I think the fact that I was willing to give up the client to another agency he saw that, you know, we truthfully were being honest about we didn't hold the funds. And I think true that he saw the truth that we really want to do what's best for the client. Yeah. And he ended up reinstating the policy. Wow. So again, that there was nothing in my power that I say that I could convince him to do that. I think through that prayer and then, you know, my Bible study team getting behind me on it, maybe God laid a hand on that insurance rep and showed some grace and some mercy. Um, but again, it's, I know it wasn't me being convincing cause I literally just said, Hey, I'm willing to give this thing up. I don't think that was the true reason. You know, the only reason he did it, I think probably in his heart, he, he found some grace and said he'd reinstate it. Well, so. I like the concept of, you know, how do you handle things that are out of your control? You know, whatever that, however you want to do that, but we all face it. I mean, that's the whole point of this entire podcast of On the Rocks, like the whole thing, which is going to go to the next question, but it's basically, it's like, how did you overcome, you know, whatever challenges you, like even the most successful people I've talked to, they've all gone through like really tough times. And and I think for folks like us who are like, go-getters, get after it, do it, when things we can't affect something and if we don't have any influence or input, that's like our toughest time for me. I'm like, well... Jesus, this is a problem. I gotta sit back and wait. <laughs> but um, but on that note, you know, you know, uh, talked about, you know, uh, the whole the whole point of this is I started this in COVID when I was sitting here by myself at my house and nobody could talk and my kids weren't allowed to come over because maybe we had co- who knew and I was mm-hmm. just like I gotta find somebody to talk to. Sure. Like and I was like I can at least do a Zoom you know podcast interview like something and of course. All the executives and CEOs I talk to, they're sitting at home too. Like, we, sure. we, we know how you're feeling. We're feeling the same way. Sure. But the point of overcoming that kind of environment, which was scary for all of us, um, you know, what is the one of the larger things you've overcome in life? Personal business. I mean, you look back on any, maybe it was, you know, going from your father's shop to getting out there and being in college or like one of the biggest moments where you felt nervous or apprehensive, where you kind of acted and and it got you where to were today. Do you have any re- recollection of those? Um, I'd say I had like a lot of smaller things that I've overcame, I, I guess. Like I, I can't really say I've had a huge tragedy in my life and knock on wood that doesn't happen. Um, so I wouldn't say there's like just one life-changing hurdle that was just this whole epiphany. I think it's been a lot of, um, for me, it's just in the early age, really coming out of a small town. And I think you can ask my family this, but I'm pretty sure I was the only one out of my immediate family that 
went four year to a four year college, like four years in, four years out. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, leaving the small town, going to Charlotte, then from Charlotte to Charleston. So I think, you know, those are pretty large steps coming from yeah. a small town guy who a lot of that, you know, area of town, people just kind of did the routine thing, whether it was, you know, continue with their family business or, you know, find some type of local business and stay local and just kind of be comfortable in that uh, community. So branching out, going to Charlotte, that was one thing. And then I had a pretty good job out of college. I mean, it could have, you know, excelled. I could have built yeah. a, a nice book of business doing personal lines. And, you know, it was a great foundation. I had a great source of referrals, especially with all the AAA members. And I just knew that there was something bigger out there for me. And I think for me, especially coming right out of college, to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to stop here. Like I gave it one year just to put one year on my resume. Yeah. But I'm going to stop right here and I'm going to go out and do what I thought I was going to college for was commercial insurance. But for me to be able to go out and interview with those, you know, presidents and heads of these large commercial insurance brokers, sure. pretty tough as a young kid who only had, you know, essentially one prior interview to go back on. And the, the job that I got right out of college, um, I was referred in from an, another guy who graduated six months before me and he just put a good word in for me. Yeah. So it was a pretty easy interview, especially selling home and auto insurance they'll pretty much hire anybody because they know the first thing you're going to do is go out and just attack all your friends and family and get their insurance. And then if you suck and you quit or they fire you, whatever, they just got a bunch of business. On the commercial side, it doesn't really happen that way, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, They really want to... So I think that was a big... And then just moving from Charlotte to Charleston when I knew nobody here except the friends that I had met within the last year and then my one best friend slash mentor living here. That was kind of a big deal, you know, moving out of the state. Um, You know, other challenges, I've had a lot of injuries, uh, you know, broken bones growing up and um, two hernia surgeries and, you know, crazy mouth surgeries with pulling four teeth at once. I mean, just there's a lot of like medical, not anything like cancer or anything large like that, but definitely some setbacks and some things now that I'm 35. I'm feeling those previous injuries. So, you know, being able to power through those, whether that be going through yoga, um, doing some uh, high-low classes, things yeah. like that, really getting your body back in shape, um, I think have, have could have easily been setbacks where I'm like, you know what, now I, I can't swing a golf club anymore or I can't go snowboarding anymore because my knee's shot. But really, you know, just powering through those and, and getting healthy, you know, quickly rather than just sitting back and be like, no, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, your self-belief and uh, attitude and perseverance has got you now here today with, you know, your new caddy, you know, your pink pants <laughs> on a Tuesday and a beautiful... So I just say congratulations, man. I know what it's like coming from a small town, kind of, I did it from Bowling Green, Kentucky, and taking a chance and just self-belief. And, uh, you know, now the whole world's going to know your story. But uh, we've always been impressed with your attitude and what you've done. and. I'll tell everybody listening to this podcast to hit you up on their insurance. So thanks for spending time with us today. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill.